Well, turn to Romans if you're not there. Romans chapter 12. Parag, you're right. I always take the path of least resistance. So we got two verses today to look at. And the Apostle Paul, whenever he writes in any of these letters, he spends the first half of his letter thinking uh, theologically about some area of doctrine and who uh, his audience is in terms of uh, their relationship with, uh, with God through Christ. And then he transitions in the second half uh, to thinking more practically in terms of how this theology gets applied. Because all of life is an application of theology. Even if you're an atheist, the way that you live your life, you live it out of a way, out of how you think about who God is or isn't. And so this is what Paul is doing here in chapter 12 and through the end. So there's, there's not a lot of command statements in the first 11 chapters. But here in chapter 12 to the end of the letter, you're going to see a lot of commands because Paul is thinking, okay, if this is true, then how does it impact how we live? And verses 1 and 2 kind of set the, the scene. They kind of set the mark for everything else that he's going to argue uh, or say in these remaining chapters. So let's pray and uh, just ask for his help as we look at these words, and then we'll consider them together. Father, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus as we consider what he's accomplished, as we consider what he's done. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us as we think about these words today in Romans 12, these words that you have uh, inspired through your spirit, that you have given us for our benefit so that our joy in Christ might be increased. And we pray, Father, that you would work in us I pray, Father, that you would speak through me, Father, that you would help me to speak clearly. Would you take a few moments just quietly, don't say anything out loud, but ask God to speak to your heart today through his word. And then if you would just take a few moments and pray for me, uh, that God might speak through me. Father, we need you. Uh, we need to be captivated anew with a, a fresh vision of the love that you've demonstrated in Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts and that we would respond as you desire. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm fascinated by North Korea, just the whole, the whole uh, culture of, of North Korea. Uh, North Korea, uh, in, in North Korea, all of life is worship. All of life, every moment of every day in North Korea is given to the worship and adoration of the Kim family as the leaders uh, in North Korea, under penalty of imprisonment or maybe even death. When the first leader passed away, there was a hundred day period of mourning that was required for everyone. And if the officials felt like you weren't sincere enough in your mourning, you could have been imprisoned uh, or even executed. It's worship under penalty. 
Worship under penalty. And you know what? That's the way a lot of people in our world think about God. I was speaking with a man just this past week who grew up Roman Catholic, and he was talking about how he rejected the God that he grew up hearing about in the Catholic Church, a God of, uh, a God of uh, who was ready to kind of pounce on you at the slightest infraction. And I said, look, I would have rejected that God too. I said, but that's not the God that we see in the Scripture. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe for you, the, this God that you've heard about is a raging tyrant. And, and listen, if that's your view of God this morning, you are not going to make it long before you defect. If the God that you've heard about or the God that you're being presented with is no different than the Kim family in North Korea, you're going to defect. You're not going to make it very long. See, guilt is not transformative. Guilt imprisons us. It doesn't transform us. And so if that's you today, I just want to invite you into what I might call worship as God intended it to be. And that is a response to a radically gracious and loving Father. See, listen, all of life is worship for us as well. It's one of the things we're going to see in these verses today. All of life is worship for us, but for a Jesus follower, worship is an all of life response to all of who God is. And so, yes, we worship Him as King. We worship Him as Creator. When we start our service, we read a psalm, and how many times does the psalm extol us to worship God as a sovereign King and Creator and Judge? But our worship is also a response to His incredible love and mercy and grace. And listen, it's the latter It's the love and mercy and grace of our Father that gives shape to how we think about Him as King and Creator and Judge. In other words, what kind of a King is God? Well, He's a merciful and gracious King. What kind of Creator is God? Well, He's one who loves His creation and seeks to restore it in Christ. What kind of a judge is God? Well, he is one who judges sin and wickedness, but he is patient as he seeks to draw in people to show his mercy to them. And what Paul has shown us in Romans thus far is that gospel of God's love and grace that changes everything. It changes our worship. It changes how we think about uh, our relationship to God, our Heavenly Father. It changes, as we'll see in the coming weeks, how we relate to one another in a church setting. It changes how we relate even to our enemies. It causes us to do things that we wouldn't normally do because we understand the grace that was shown to us. 
And so today we're going to think about worship and how the gospel changes the way we relate to God in worship. So what does all of life worship look like for us? Does it look like North Korea? People are going around trying to say, hey, you're not sincere enough. You're going to prison or you're going to be executed. Is it forced? Is it coerced? Or is it something more? So let's look at these verses together. Uh, Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What we see here is that God's love is the fuel for our worship. God's love is the fuel for our worship. That the love of God, the love that he has shown us, precedes our love for God. The love of God that he has shown us precedes our love for God. Look at the basis by which the Apostle Paul calls us to present our bodies. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the basis of all that he's going to call us to do. The basis is the mercy that God has shown us. So Paul appeals a strong exhortation. He appeals not based on duty, which he could have done, he could have said, look, all you, all you, uh, all you little, little human beings, give worship to God, your king. He could have appealed to us on the basis of duty because our worship is owed to God, but he doesn't. He appeals to us on the basis of something that God has done in our lives. He is the first mover in terms of worship. And so worship as a a mere duty, a mere exercise, completely misses the point. Let's say it's my wedding anniversary, and I get my wife Mandy flowers, and I turn up uh, at the door, I meet her in in the kitchen, and I have my flowers ready, and she says, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And my response to her is, well, don't, don't, don't mention it. It's my duty as a husband to bring you flowers on our anniversary. It misses the point, doesn't it? Worship in the mind of the Apostle Paul as a a mere exercise of duty misses the point. This is for Paul to us an invitation to something more. Paul says we respond to God's love that is shown to us in Christ. Think about the the words of the Apostle John in 1 John. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Later in chapter 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable, uh, one of the parables of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that's hidden in a field. And a man finds it, and he covers it back up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has to buy the field. 
See, worship is a response to God's love shown us in Christ. And Paul has given us, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, an, an HD video of how incredible God's love for us is. And so as we look back to the first 11 chapters in Romans, remember, in chapters 1 to 3, we were lost in sin and hopeless. In chapters 3 and 4, we were totally saved, despite our sin, by God's unmerited grace. In chapter 5, he said we are secure in that grace and in that love forever. In chapter 6 through 8, we're set free from the, 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 the imprisonment, the, contr the control of sin in our lives forever. In chapters 9 to 11, he said that, that nothing will invalidate those promises, that we can stand secure in them forever. And of course, he ends chapter 11 with that doxology, that word of praise as he thinks about all that he said, how incredible this God is. Our response is joy-filled worship as we consider the incredible, undeserved love of our Heavenly Father. So the love of God precedes our love for God, and it compels us to give God our all. It compels us to give God our all to lay down all of who we are as an act of worship. And it's the laying down of all that we see in this verse. It's the laying down of all of who we are that is the selling of possessions for the joy that we treasure more that Jesus referred to in Matthew 13. So Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we offer all of who we are to God in response to his incredible love, which he has shown us. Now, there's an obvious reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system where a, a lamb or a goat was taken and slaughtered and presented as an offering to God. And that was a total act, wasn't it? The animal was killed and it was completely given uh, to God. And so, as Paul calls us to present our bodies, he's calling us to present everything we have to God. It's a total sacrifice, it's a total giving of ourselves to God in response to what he's done. But we do it. As we go on living, he says a living sacrifice. So we do it not only totally, but continually as we go. And so look, every day is to be lived as an act of worship. Where every day in response to what God has done, I willingly give myself to what he desires for me. Everywhere we go as we go. And so we offer ourselves bodily, we offer ourselves totally to God. But unlike those Old Testament sacrifices, we do so continually 
We do so intelligently as we, we, we think about what God has done and, and our giving is a response to that. And we do so willingly. Maybe you've heard the story of a chicken and a pig that walk down the road and as they're walking down the road, they see a sign that says, help feed the poor. And the chicken looks at the pig and he says, you know what? We should help feed the poor. Maybe we can donate a ham and egg breakfast to help feed the poor. And the pig stops and thinks, uh, thinks about it for a little while and he says, wait, 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 hold on. He said, for you, that's just a contribution. But for me, that's a total commitment. And see, this is what Paul calls us to. The offering of all of who we are, totally, continually, intelligently, willingly, as we lay ourselves down in response to what he has done. He calls this act of offering holy and acceptable. That is, we give God, the, we give God our best acceptable out of a desire to live as his holy people. Paul concludes verse 1, which is your spiritual worship? So this giving of all of who we are in response to what God has done, Paul says is our only reasonable service. It's our, our spiritual act of worship. This is where Paul drills down into this understanding of worship as a response. It's fitting, he says. It's appropriate. As we think about it, it's the only thing that really makes sense. In light of what God has done in Christ, the only fitting response is to give everything we are to him in worship. It's not the begrudging giving of a slave to a cruel master. See, this worship isn't, it's not coerced. In the same way that uh, the sun doesn't coerce a flower to blossom in the spring. Rather, it's like the gentle, willing offering of a spouse to a loving partner. Now, th this, is, this is alien in our culture today. This is completely foreign in our day. I mean, who would do this? Who would offer everything they have and everything they are to another. But, and this is what makes it reasonable, when you stop and think, when you consider, when you understand the grace that God has shown you in Christ, it makes perfect sense. Think about it. What else could we offer such a gracious God? Okay, think about the first 11 chapters. Think about your state, your spiritual condition, lost in sin, shown undeserved favor. What could we offer God in response to that? Not, not to pay him back. We're not talking about paying back. It ceases to be grace if that's the motivation. No, it's a response to love that is shown. What could we offer? Money? Put a price on your rescue from sin and death. What's it worth? Is it worth 100 euro? Maybe a million euro? 
maybe 10 trillion euro. Think about time. What is it worth in terms of time, your rescue from sin and death? Is it worth an hour? Is it worth a month? No. See, here's the thing. I cannot give more than everything I am. That is the most that I can give. If I could give more, I would, but I can't. So I give it all. I give everything to God in response to the grace that he has shown in Christ. God's love shown to us compels us, not out of a sense of duty, but as a response to the warmth of his love in our lives. God's love fuels our worship in that it's his love that drives us to give everything we have to him. And where there's fuel, there's often fire. So something happens when we give our all to God in response to his love. Something happens in us. Christ-likeness then becomes the fire that is produced. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's life change that leads to joy. See, as the Spirit of God ignites the fuel of God's love in our hearts, we start to look like Jesus. We get transformed and changed. And listen, who enjoyed the love of the Father more than Jesus? And who was more obedient than anyone? Jesus. See, the enjoyment of God's love and obedience and holiness come together perfectly in Christ. And as the Spirit of God ignites the fuel of God's love in our hearts, we start to look like him, that we might experience the joy of the Father the way he did. This is the product of God's love in us. It's Christ-likeness. And like any, like any fire, uh, that means that there is light and there is heat. So as we respond to God's love, we begin to look like Jesus. We begin to shine out his light and his character and his love to the world around us. Notice Paul says, he draws this contrast. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, don't allow the world around you to squeeze you into its mold, to make you look like it. Again, we have been transferred. We've used this language before. We've been transferred from one kingdom, the kingdom of the world, to the kingdom of God. But as we're transferred, we travel with baggage, don't we? We bring some of that sin into this new place in which we now dwell in Christ. And so we are constantly pulled by the world around us, this, this age that's driven by sin. We're constantly pulled by it because we still live in it. David Wells defined worldliness as whatever makes righteousness look strange 
and sin look good. That's worldliness. That's what it means. And we are constantly pulled by the world around us to look like it, to reflect its values and its concerns. And Paul says, don't allow that. Push back against that and don't allow the world to to mold you into its image. Rather, he says, to resist that pressure and allow the Spirit to transform you by the renewing of your mind. Because we've been made new. And what the Spirit does in us, as we are already new, He makes us new as we daily yield ourselves to Him. So Christianity isn't a mask that we, that we pick up on Sunday morning and that we put on as we go to present ourselves to our church people. It's not just a mask that we put on and then take off when we get home from church so we can live out the rest of our week. Christianity, following Jesus, is a total life renewal. It's a metamorphosis. Like when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's completely new as the Spirit of God works God's Word into us to change us from the inside out. And Paul says that as our minds are renewed, we might be able to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, listen, this is Paul's vision of the renewed life. It's a people who so reflect Jesus that they instinctively do what pleases him. That they instinctively do what pleases them. I've shared this story before that I heard years ago. Every time I go into my kid's room, it's messy. And I say, you need to clean your room. You need to clean your room. You need to clean your room. Clean your room. Clean your room. And I get so tired of it, I think, man, wouldn't it be great if I could take a little piece of myself and implant it into them So that when they saw their room, they said, I need to clean my room. Just instinctively. Wouldn't that be great? Amen? Amen. Wouldn't that be great? But see, that's what God does in us. He gives us himself. That as he transforms us to make us look like Jesus, we begin instinctively to see things around us the way he sees them. And to do instinctively that which we used to have to be told to do. So as we are transformed, we are able to discern in any situation the course of action that will most glorify him. Paul says it, that which is good, that which conforms to his character, that which is pleasing, that which brings him pleasure, and that which is perfect or which is holy. And having discerned it, to delight in doing it. Having discerned what is the right course, to delight to do it. Look, God doesn't need to give us a law for every possible situation. You know, we've got, we don't have like 20,000 commandments that pertain to every possible scenario. So we can just go back to this giant thing and look, oh yeah, in subpoint B, it says do this, do this. No, God just gives us himself and he just transforms us 
so that we begin to instinctively live out that which pleases him. So for example, you know, we're tempted to cheat. Maybe at school if you're a student or maybe in business. That the opportunity presents itself to, to, to cheat or to steal. And we understand that doing that is not in keeping with God's heart. It's not God's best for us. And so in that, we have proven and we've tested the action. We've found it out of step with what God wants. And so we don't do it. And indeed, eventually, we don't even desire it. It's not even a temptation for us because God is working in us. And why not? Because as we respond to God's love and worship, we begin to love Christ more. We begin to experience his love even more. And it drives us to even further and deeper obedience. So it comes full circle. From God, his love to us, we respond to that, and that increases our love for him, causing us to be able to experience and understand his love even more. It comes full circle. As we are transformed, we see the, the temperature of our affections increase and a growing joy that continually compels us to give him more. Michael Reeves, he said, the spirit doesn't work to align our actions. The spirit works to align and increase our affections. Because when we love and delight in him, we are transformed to be like him. So how do we increase our capacity to worship? How do we build our worship muscles? How do we live in the light of this love? Responding to it by giving our all to him. We have to fight, don't we? We have to fight every day. We have to fight together with all joy to keep our eyes on that demonstration of God's love, the cross. We have to fight every day to keep the cross, that central image in our hearts and minds. The cross shows us God's love. It's the visible demonstration. Again, just think back to Romans 1 through 11, the incredible exposition that Paul took us through on the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus. And that leads us to give everything. And so think about the cross often. Indeed, every day. Uh, read it as you read your Bibles. Sing it. You know, look, if you don't think music impacts us, I'm sure that you've had the experience of just singing in your mind some jingle or advert that you saw decades ago and then just all of a sudden comes into your mind. Now, music is powerful. And so sing about the cross. Listen to music about the cross because it's the cross that points us to God's love which ultimately transforms us and maximizes our joy. Let the love of God warm you as you open wide to receive it. Now maybe you think you don't deserve God's love. Well, great. That's the first step in receiving it. 
Because none of us deserved the demonstration of his love. That's why it's grace. And so we need to daily preach this gospel of grace made visible in the cross to ourselves. Because that's where we see and are able to respond to what God has done. And the cross transforms us. So we fight daily to keep it in our sight. Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan, he said, when we see the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, this will transform us to love God. See, transformation is for our good so that we might enjoy the Father's perfect love more and more. So our goal should be the same as that of Christ, to be like him. Why? To maximize our joy. That's where we experience the most joy in this life. And that's what we all want, right? We all want to experience secure love. We all want to experience the joy that comes from being in a secure relationship. And so we should pursue our joy in the only place that it can be satisfied, the love of our Father. And that starts with clinging to the cross. And the more we're there, the more we're transformed. Charles Spurgeon, the old preacher, he likened it to a snowstorm. You wake up in the morning and there's snow everywhere. And you go out with your shovel and you try to shovel a little bit at a time. And he said, your effort in trying to shovel a little bit of snow out of your, your drive pales in comparison to what the sun does as it comes up and just gradually melts all the snow. And so he says, that is what the Lord does in the new creation. His love shines on the soul. His grace renews us. And the old things pass away as a matter of course. Where his blessed face beams with grace and truth, as the sun beams with warmth and light, he dissolves the bands of sin's long frost. And he brings on the spring of grace with newness of buds and flowers. The gospel of God's love changes everything. And as we respond in worship to God's love through the cross, giving all of who we are to him, we begin to look like Jesus. To God's glory and for our joy. I know it sounds weird to say that giving your life actually leads to finding it, but it's true. It's the opposite of what the world tells us. The world tells us, pursue your autonomy. Do what you want. That's the only way you're going to realize happiness in this life. But Jesus says the opposite, that life is found with the one who created you to enjoy his love and to delight in seeking him. And so listen, if you're here today and you've never received the love of God demonstrated in the cross, you are missing, you are missing the opportunity to experience the joy that you were designed and created to experience. So maybe today would be the day where you for the first time respond to his love in faith and receive the gift of life that he offers in Jesus.
who died for you. Maybe you're a Jesus follower and you felt motivated by guilt in your Christian life to try and stay on God's good side by doing a bunch of churchy things. You got it backwards. And listen, let me just tell you, if that's the way you view your Christian life, you will not make it long because guilt cannot sustain you. What sustains you is turning and receiving his love and allowing that love to transform you because his love changes everything. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is not North Korea. Aren't you glad? The gospel of Jesus is about allowing the love of God to warm you as it transforms you. And there is nothing better in this life. There is no greater joy that can be experienced than to give God everything in response to his love. After we pray, we're going to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <clears throat> and as we sing, and I just want to draw your attention to the third stanza. It's an incredible verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine. In other words, if I had everything in the universe to offer to God, he says, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. So let's pray together, and then we sing. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love that called us out of the depth of sin, the hopelessness of sin, and drew us into life, life eternal, life full of joy through Christ our Savior. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to think regularly about the cross, as we sang earlier, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we, in doing that, might experience the warmth of your love, and that in that, Father, your spirit might change us and make us new. Father, I pray that we would set aside guilt and shame as a false motivator, and Father, that we would embrace the cross as that which compels us to worship. That we would respond to your heart and that you would work in us. Thank you, Father, that you have promised that you will complete your work within us. We know that we're in process. And Father, we struggle with sin. And we, we daily have to come to you confessing our sin on the basis of the blood of Jesus, knowing that it is forgiven through him. We have to come to you and confess. But Father, we thank you that you are working in us and that you will bring what you are doing to completion. Father, do your work in us that we might look like Jesus 
In his name we pray. Amen.